Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 18, Alexander the Great. There are five main sources for the history of Alexander the Great. Arian, the 2nd century AD, who based most of his works off of the writings of Ptolemy that no longer survive. Plutarch, also a Roman historian from the 2nd century, and his work focuses on Alexander's drive and ambition. Diodorus, 1st century BCE, from Sicily. He regarded Alexander the Great to be as important as Julius Caesar. There is also Curtius, from the 1st century CE, who used his writings of Alexander the Great subliminally to criticize the current emperors of Rome, specifically Tiberius and Caligula. Curtius was known to get important military facts wrong as well as geographic regions. Finally, there is Justin, who wrote a very condensed version of Alexander the Great at the end of the 2nd century CE. Very little is known about Justin. As a child, Alexander's father, Philip, knew that unless he did something different with his son, the Greek polis in the south would view him as nothing more than a barbarian king. However, the vision Philip had for his son and the Hellenic world as a whole meant that he would need to seek outside help in raising his son. Philip hired the great philosopher Aristotle to tutor his son and to shape him into the man that would one day be able to lead the Greeks. Aristotle was given a palace on the coast to teach the young nobility of Macedonia. Greek, philosophy, morality, logic, art, medicine, and even history. A lot of Alexander's close friends and later generals attended this class with Aristotle, including Ptolemy. However, Aristotle taught many private lessons to Alexander alone, for it was he who was destined to rule over the entire world, not his friends. Alexander used to complain to his teacher when all of his friends got to go outside, while he was forced to stay in the palace and study. Just a quick fun fact is Alexander was forced to stay in class a lot longer than his friends, and this is because he was supposed to be the ruler of the world. But as he died at a very young age, it turns out all of his friends who got to leave class early were the ones who inherited the empire from Alexander the Great. And maybe it would have been nice if they stuck around a little bit longer and paid a little more attention to Aristotle. A famous quote from Aristotle to Alexander. Education has bitter roots, but its fruit is as sweet as honey. Aristotle also taught Alexander that courage was the greatest virtue a soldier could have, but not too much courage, or that soldier would step out of rank and charge the enemies on his own, in which case too much courage was a vice. Therefore, a soldier needed to stay in the middle ground, brave but not reckless. Aristotle gave Alexander a a copy of Homer's Iliad and taught him everything about the united Greek armies that invaded the Asian territory to take back Helen and answered the call of Agamemnon. Aristotle taught Alexander that he would one day lead an army into Asia just as Agamemnon had done almost a thousand years before. It was said that Alexander had slept with a copy of the Iliad while he was on campaign in Asia. I'm sure the lessons Aristotle taught Alexander about the Iliad and all the heroes that went into Troy really influenced Alexander and probably played a lot on his ego. 
When Alexander became the king of Macedon, it was on the eve of war with Persia. The great war machine was already moving, and it was his first priority as king, invade Persia and conquer the enemies of the Greeks. And Alexander now commanded an army made up of the best troops from all of Greece. It was an invincible army if it stayed in its proper formation. They were built around the Macedonian phalanx, equipped with 10,000 pikes over 18 feet long. Defending the phalanx from the rear was another army of standard. Cavalry and peltests made up the right and left flanks, and the cavalry was made up of the most skilled horsemen in the Hellenic League. With Alexander the Great commanding the most advanced and skilled army the world had ever seen, they were ready to conquer the Persian Empire. Timing couldn't have been any better for the Greek invasion. The empire had been experiencing political strife for several years. In 338 BC, the Persian king of kings, Artaxerxes III, was poisoned. And his youngest son, Artaxerxes IV, took the throne. However, he was murdered in 336 BC, the same year that Philip was murdered back in Greece. After that, a Persian noble seized the throne and took the name Darius III. His legitimacy was called into question by many of the nobles, and he immediately had to put down rebellions in Babylon and Egypt. Alexander's plan to defeat the Persians is more or less his father's plan. The hammer and anvil strategy defeated his enemies before, and he knew it would again. The rapid engagement from the Macedonian phalanx pins the enemy in one location, at which point Alexander unleashes his cavalry in a charge at their weakest point, breaking through the formation and scattering his enemy's army. In 335 BCE, Alexander was hit with several rebellions at once. There were people rebelling in Illyria and Thessaly, as well as in Thebes. Alexander marched his army into each region, suppressing the rebellions and killing thousands in his wake. It is important to note right now that Alexander the Great is responsible for more Greek deaths than all of the Persian wars combined. And this was the beginning of it. He marched his army into Thebes and sacked the entire city, burning many of the rich and ancient structures to the ground, and killing most of the inhabitants while selling the survivors into slavery. In 334 BCE, Alexander marches his army to the Hellespont and crosses from Europe into Asia. His massive army is now inside of the northwestern portion of the province of Lydia. When comparing the size of this army to the Persian army that invaded Greece in 480 BC, it was smaller. But this was also organized into the most efficient army the world had ever seen. Almost as soon as they crossed the Hellespont, the local Persian governor was alerted and a response was mustered and marched out to stop Alexander. This army was made up mostly of Persian cavalry and about 10,000 Greek mercenaries in their center phalanx. The advisor to the local governor was a Greek general who commanded the 10,000 mercenaries. He told the Persians to retreat and not meet Alexander in battle. Instead, he should retreat back to the capital of Lydia and burn all of the crops in a scorched earth policy. This would force Alexander to follow and eventually he would starve and his army would be forced to retreat. Unfortunately for the Persians, this governor refused to burn all of his land without putting up a fight. So he marched his troops into battle to repel Alexander and the Hellenic League. The Battle of Granicus When Alexander met the Persian army in northwestern Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey, and the site of ancient Troy, he found the Persian army lined up along the far side of a shallow river, over 60 feet wide. 
The Persians had all of their cavalry lined up at the front, and the 10,000 Greek hoplite mercenaries were at the rear of the army. Now, the Persians had trouble trusting the Greek mercenaries, and they didn't know if they could rely on them being placed at the front of the army. And this, of course, compromised the entire military force. And immediately, Alexander saw a way to open a gap in the military line. Alexander personally led a charge from the right flank, made up entirely of Macedonian companions, which were his elite cavalry. Now, this charge was a trap and was meant to focus the Persian cavalry on the right flank. Alexander gave a great speech to his men, telling them all to have courage, but also to remain in formation as they made a charge across the river and into Persian lines. Almost as soon as they started crossing the water, the Persians began hurling missiles at them, ranging from spears and javelins to arrows. A lot of Macedonians fell in the charge, but the cavalry made it across the water and slammed into the Persian ranks. With the companions distracting the Persian army in a head-on battle on the right flank, the Macedonian phalanx began to advance across the river and up the steep embankment. And once they were successfully across the river, they pinned the Persians between the 18-foot javelins and Alexander's cavalry. The result was catastrophic for the Persians, and those who could fled the battlefield on their horses. This is another example of the hammer and anvil. And if it wasn't for Alexander's distraction with the cavalry charge, they would have never been able to successfully get their phalanx up that steep embankment. With the Persians defeated so quickly, the only ones left standing on the battlefield were the 10,000 Greek mercenaries who never even saw the battle because it had been lost so fast. They immediately surrendered and asked to join the Greek army with Alexander, but he was not having any of it. In his eyes, they were traitors and the enemy. The 10,000 hoplites were surrounded by the Macedonian phalanx and stabbed to death. Every single Greek mercenary was killed without mercy. This battle did not go unnoticed, and Darius III was hell-bent on crushing Alexander. A Persian army larger than the one in the Battle of Granicus began to march across Asia to stop Alexander. Darius III was using all of his wealth of the empire to build this new army. Darius donned his white armor, got in his chariot, and marched off to meet Alexander III in battle. After taking the capital city of the Persian province of Lydia, Sardis, which is also the same Sardis they burnt to the ground, I believe, during the uh, Ionian Revolution, Alexander marched his army to the two cities in the south, Miletus and Heliconarsus. These two maritime cities were the naval bases for the Persian Empire, and it was from here that Darius III's entire fleet that patrolled the Aegean Sea lay waiting. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast.
Knowing that it was vital for Alexander to destroy Darius's navy if he were to take complete control, he decided the best move was to attack the navy from the land instead of from the sea. And by the end of the winter, Alexander's army had taken both cities. Um, this is a this is a very good example of like a smart a smart tactical move. He knew he had to take out the Persian navy, but he also didn't have a navy of his own. So he just went and attacked the port cities where the navies were docked and destroyed the Persians' entire navy from the land. So that means the Persians can no longer send troops into mainland Greece to distract them and force Alexander to recall his army back out of Anatolia. Now, this is what happened with the Spartan king who was invading Asia Minor only 50 years before, and he would have made it except for the Persians messing up everything on mainland Greece. So now, Alexander's basically secured the Aegean Sea behind him, so he, he can focus entirely on moving forward. Alexander's army was free to march through Lydia. From city to city, carving up the Persian province and bringing it into the Hellenic fold. When he marched into the city of Gordium, he entered the city temple where the famous Gordian knot lay on display. This was a famous knot, so intricate that it is said to be the one who could untangle this knot would be destined to rule over all of Asia. Alexander is said to have pulled out his sword and cut the knot in half. Kind of cheating. In 333 BCE, Alexander led his men through Cilicia and into Syria. They were marching along the narrow flats between the large mountains and the sea, just coming around the corner of the Mediterranean where Anatolia meets Syria. The Greek army was in a very narrow strip of land between the mountains and the sea when the Persian army, led by Darius, came around from the north, trapping them in the narrow plain. Darius outnumbered the Greek army two to one and was ready to crush the Greeks once and for all. The Battle of Issus The Persians line up in formation to face off against the Greek armies, basically forcing them to fight if they want to escape the narrow valley. The Macedonian army was formed up in its usual formation. The Persians had their center filled with Greek mercenaries in usual hoplite fashion and the cavalry on the right flank, right next to the sea. In the back of the army, Darius was protected by 10,000 of his elite soldiers, the famous immortals. Darius had the overwhelming numbers to crush Alexander, but he didn't know how lethal the Macedonians really were. Alexander rode in front of his men and gave a speech to encourage his soldiers to fight with bravery. He was really good at giving speeches to boost his soldiers' morale. His strategy was the exact same as that in the Battle of Granicus. Advance with a cavalry charge as fast as possible to disarray his enemy and then crush them with his phalanx. This time, however, Alexander charged so fast it took the Persians completely by surprise. They never expected a charge this fast. Even the Macedonian phalanx was charging across the battlefield. The charge was a little too fast, though and the Macedonian phalanx started to become unorganized, and their formation had broken down. This was very dangerous as the pikes were more of a hindrance if the soldier wasn't in perfect formation. The Greek mercenaries fighting for the Persians took advantage of the disorganized Macedonians and started to chop through the phalanx. Slowly the Macedonians were driven back. Alexander was much further ahead on the battlefield, slaughtering the enemy from the top of his horse when he saw that his main army was in trouble and very quickly would be overrun by the Greek mercenaries. He turned his cavalry around and led a charge at the back of the hoplites, hitting them hard where they were most vulnerable. 
As the Greek mercenaries started to become unorganized, the Macedonian phalanx had time to reorganize. Once the 18-foot-long pikes were all back in formation, the killing blow could be delivered. The phalanx marched forward, pinning the enemy between the pikes and the cavalry. Darius was in the second row of the 10,000 immortals, watching the battle unfold right before him. That is when Alexander saw the King of Kings and led a personal charge of his companions straight at the immortals. Alexander had no fear and galloped ahead of his cavalry, intent on killing Darius with his own hands. Darius saw this bloodthirsty king charging at him and decided to flee instead. When the Persian infantry saw their king of kings in his shiny white armor, flee from the battlefield and destroy the troops' morale. Once word had spread throughout the army that Darius had fled, the Persian army broke up as each soldier tried to save his own life. When the battle was over, thousands of Persian bodies lay on the battlefield. There were so many dead that the Greeks used their bodies to fill a deep ravine so they could cross over it with their horses and carts. Captured alive at this battle were the children and wives of Darius. They were treated well by Alexander. After defeating the Persian army at the Battle of Issus, Alexander marched his army south along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the modern-day coast of Lebanon and Israel, where two very big naval bases for the Persian Empire lay. These were the ancient Phoenician cities of Tyre and Gaza. These Semitic Phoenicians were allies with Persia and could do a lot of damage to the Greeks at home, so it was necessary for Alexander to eliminate them from the equation. When Alexander's army made it to the city of Tyre, they laid down for a long siege. Now the secret to Tyre's defense was that it was built on a small island just off the coast of Phoenicia. And this was trouble for Alexander because he did not have a navy or any boats with him. And while the island of Tyre was almost a kilometer from the mainland, it was protected by the fleet. So Alexander ordered his men to start carrying earth rocks and dirt from the land and to the sea, where man after man dumped these rocks into the water, building a causeway to the small island. Two large siege towers moved along with the causeway, protecting the workers and firing arrows at the people of Tyre. In 332 BCE, the causeway connected with the mainland, and the Macedonian army marched onto the island of Tyre. They sacked the city. It took a long time to build this causeway, and Alexander knew they were going to have a huge defense plan in place by the time they made a connection. So Alexander secured himself some ships and secretly planned an invasion by sea. It was clear that the army of Tyre was focused on the causeway, and they left a gap open in their defenses. Alexander sent his newly acquired ships and army right through this gap, landed on the island, and attacked the army from behind, and then advanced his phalanx across the causeway, trapping his enemy once again between the hammer and anvil. The inhabitants of Tyre were either cut down in their homes or dragged away and sold into slavery. After taking the city of Tyre, they marched south and burned the Phoenician city of Gaza to the ground. Alexander continued his march through Gaza and into the province of Egypt. In the capital city of Pelusium, the Persian governor surrendered the entire province and its treasury to Alexander the Great. So he's rich now. As Alexander marched south along the Nile River, he made it to the ancient Egyptian city of Memphis, where the Egyptians greeted him as a liberator from the centuries of Persian rule. They crowned him Pharaoh of Egypt. After the great honor of being crowned Pharaoh, he traveled north along the Nile until he reached the coast, where he founded a city and named it after himself, Alexandria. After founding his own city, 
He traveled deep into the desert where he visited the Egyptian oracle in Libya that named him the son of the king god Amu. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In 331 BCE, after traveling back to the city of Tyre, Alexander got word that there were rebellions in the Greek mainland. The people of the polis had started to view him as a tyrant and wanted to break free from his rule. The current king of Sparta, and the only Greek polis not to be part of the Hellenic League, revolted against the Macedonians, and did so with the help and aid of the Persians. Alexander sent a letter to his general in Thrace to march down to the Peloponnese and destroy the Spartan uprising. This general did just that and marched hundreds of miles across the Isthmus and into the Peloponnese where he met the Spartan king in the field of battle. It was here that the Macedonian phalanx faced off against the legendary Spartan phalanx. And because of the weakened state of the Spartans and the superior Macedonian army formations, the Spartans were wiped out to the man, including their king. At this point, Alexander had secured his entire western frontier, guaranteeing the Persians would be unable to launch an attack against Greece. He began to march his army into the heartland of the Persian Empire, through Syria and into Babylon. They were now marching away from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Word had made it to Alexander that Darius was gathering a army. All of his reserves were being called up and they were in the city of Gagamela, modern-day Mosul. The Battle of Gagamela. Darius knew that this was his last chance to defeat Alexander, so he called upon 100% of his reserves, including 50 Indian war elephants. When he met the Hellenes, his army was more than double the size of Alexander's, and Alexander lined his troops up against the Persians he searched up and down for a possible gap to exploit. His cavalry was on the right flank, and so he started to run his companions out to the right, almost looking like he was trying to ride his cavalry around the Persian flank so he could attack them from the rear. Darius III saw this and ordered his men to ride out and prevent them from getting around him. So in the height of this battle, you have two groups of cavalry that are now racing towards the outer edge of the battlefield, trying to envelop the other. This, however, was Alexander's plan all along, as it weakened the center of the Persian army. When the Macedonian phalanx charged the Persian center, it was already stretched thin. Darius III then ordered his scythe chariots to charge the Macedonian center. Now a scythe chariot was a chariot with blades fastened to the wheels, as we've seen in the previous episode. So it chopped up the Greeks as it ran past them. However, just like before, the Macedonians had drilled a response for this attack, so the phalanx broke open and the chariots raced right through, allowing most of them to pass without harm. Just like before, the phalanx opened up, allowing most of the chariots to pass through, and then closed up again pretty much repelling the chariot attack. Now at this point on the battlefield, you have Alexander the Great's army or cavalry and the companions running out to the right. And on the far left, you have Alexander's second-in-command, Parmenian, who's also in a cavalry battle on the left. So Alexander's secret move is the two cavalries, and they're both occupied on the outer edges of the battle. Now seeing this from the other side... 
Darius III thinks he has the advantage. So he orders a complete cavalry charge straight into the center of the Greek army, which was the Macedonian phalanx. And this appeared to be an advantage by Darius. He thought, this is an opening, I'm going to exploit it. But what he didn't realize was by sending all of his cavalry to charge the Macedonian center, which is, by the way, like the phalanx, they're 18 long pikes, they can repel the cavalry charge, Darius just opened up his army. Now Alexander, he's way out to the right and he's got his cavalry and they're fighting, but now he has a straight line right across the battlefield, straight into Darius's army. And the moment he sees the opening, he orders the charge. Now coming from the far right of the battlefield on an angle, it's a complete opening. I don't know if you can picture like a chessboard where suddenly, you know, all the pieces just line up and you got this bishop that can cut straight across the board and behind your opponent's pieces. That's exactly what happened here. Alexander the Great now has an opening and he charges all his cavalry across the battlefield through an opening and plows right into Darius's infantry. That is now completely undefended. And this just pushes back the Persian army completely to the point where Darius III sees Alexander coming after him specifically and he just runs. He gets on his chariot, flees the battlefield entirely. And of course, Alexander sees him and and chases him. He wants to end the war right now. And his companions are wiping out Darius's army and pushing forward. But while all this is happening, his main army is still in heavy battle against the Persians behind him. So he, he gives up the chase, turns around, rejoins his army, and comes down and circles the Persian cavalry that has his men bogged down. And then once the Persians saw that, his, that their king of kings had fled again, it wasn't long before Alexander the Great's army and all the Greeks destroyed the Persian army. The Battle of Gagamela was an outstanding victory for the Greeks. And some sources say they only last they only lost several hundred men. The Persians on the other hand were almost wiped out with thousands lost. With Darius III officially defeated, the empire was Alexander's for the taking. Now I've seen reports that say the Persians lost almost 40,000 to 50,000 men. And the Greeks lost up to 7,000, but, I mean, there's multiple sources, but it was an astounding defeat for the Persians. In 330 BCE, Alexander marched his army south to Babylon. He was greeted in the streets of the city as the rightful heir to the throne of the King of Kings. Alexander then proceeded beyond Babylon, deep into Persian territory, to the city of Susa. It was in this royal city that Alexander sat in the Persian throne, officially taking up the role as the king of kings. Having physically and ceremonially taken the throne of the Persian Empire, he then headed into the ancestral home of the Persians, Persepolis. It was crossing through these mountains where he encountered a final stand of loyal Persian soldiers. They defended the mountain pass for weeks before the Greeks found a way to surround the Persians and cut them down to the last man. 
When he took the ceremonial capital of the Persians, his initial plan was to act as a liberator and spare the townsfolk. During a night of celebrating with the local nobles, Alexander and his troops got drunk. Alexander started to get angry and belligerent. He cried out that Persia and its addiction to these indulgences led to an effeminate type of luxury, loving, weakened, moral man that corrupted everything it came into contact with. The Persians came into Greece over 150 years ago and burnt Athens to the ground, and now it was time to pay them back by burning their ceremonial capital. The richest city in the entire world. The city that consumed these indulgences in great quantities must be burned to the ground if they are to save the moral compass of the Greek people. In a drunken stupor, Alexander and his men burned the city to the ground. What started with Alexander shouting and cursing as he gathered curtains and furniture and piled them in the court, lighting the pile on fire, quickly turned into a horrible night where the city's population was hunted down, slaughtered, and raped, all the while the buildings burned to the ground. In one night, they destroyed the greatest city in the world. When this city was burned and buried in its own ashes, the city remained hidden and ignored by the rest of the world 2,300 years it lay buried until it was exhumed in the 1930s. With Persepolis still smoldering, Alexander marched his armies north through the mountains to the median city of Ecbatana, where Darius was in hiding with what remained of his loyal guard. Darius fled before Alexander got to Ecbatana in an effort to raise another army with the soldiers from the northeastern province of Parthia, modern-day Turkmenistan. Unfortunately for Darius, his bodyguard stabbed him to death and then proclaimed himself emperor. Shortly after proclaiming himself king of kings, Bessos fled to the province of Sogdia in modern-day Kazakhstan on the northern frontiers of the Persian Empire. When Alexander came across Darius' body, he gave orders for his soldiers to bury him in the tomb of his ancestors, giving him an honorable burial. After settling down for a year and appointing governors to each of his new provinces, he focused his attention on the Persian pretender Bessos. As long as there was a Persian nobleman running around the northern provinces claiming to be the king of kings, Alexander could not rest. He sent his armies north to hunt down Bessos. While on campaign, he found the city of Alexandria Ariana in modern-day Afghanistan. He needed to find these cities in order to control the local tribal people. Without a secure fortification, the tribes would conduct hit and run guerrilla warfare like raids until they eventually wore them down. This is the exact reason why Alexander founded so many cities so quickly and mostly in this region. It was his strategy for subjecting and ruling over the tribal people. Kandahar in Afghanistan was one of these cities and its original name was Alexandria. In 329 BCE, Alexander cornered the usurper Bezos in Kunduz, modern-day Nepal. He took the man alive and had him sent back to the capital for execution. He then marched north into the most northern province in the Persian Empire, Sogdia, modern-day Tajikistan. Now this was the land that bordered the Great Eurasian Steppe and was, and was one of the major points of entry for steppe tribes. Alexander founded the city of Alexandria Ishate and used it as the fortification in which to defend against steppe invasions. The current steppe tribe giving the locals grief were the Scythians. Alexander lured them close to the new city where he ambushed and destroyed the large army of Scythians, sending a message to the steppe tribes, don't even try to enter the empire through here. By this point in the campaign, his army was starting to grow tired of Alexander. They had not been home in almost 10 years. 
and Alexander did not seem to ever plan on stop campaigning. And to make matters worse, Alexander was starting to dress like a Persian. He was wearing makeup and dressed in jewelry. He was drinking more and was obsessed with Persian indulgences. He was becoming corrupted by the luxuries of the Persian Empire. In 328 BCE, in northern Sogdia, Alexander killed one of his best generals in a drunken stupor. And it was the general who saved his life in one of the earlier battles. And the next day, Alexander felt extreme remorse. When he tried to make his men bow before him, they protested in outrage at Alexander's blasphemy. No man could ask another man to bow before them. That was reserved specifically for the gods. So Alexander is definitely starting to cross the line with his soldiers and he's pushing them further and further and they're starting to turn against him. In 327 BCE, a plot to assassinate Alexander was uncovered. A young page, son of a nobleman, was implicated in the conspiracy. This young man was tortured for information before he was stoned to death. Alexander's personal historian was also implicated in this plot and arrested. In the same year, he faced many revolts in the province of Bactria. And to resolve these issues, he agreed to marry the daughter of the Bactrian king. This brought momentary stability to his new provinces, allowing him to focus on the last few provinces that had yet to capitulate to his rule. These provinces were to the south in modern-day Pakistan and the Punjabi region. In 326 BCE, Alexander marched his armies through the Hindu Kush mountains, fighting several skirmishes with local warlords. After crossing through the mountains and fighting off several attacks, Alexander took the mountain fortress of Masaga, which was ruled by a queen. Alexander did what any good ruler would do and impregnated her and then let her keep her position of power, guaranteeing his lineage would survive on in this region. The Battle of Hydaspus Having crossed into the Indus Valley, Alexander now stood upon the legendary river preached to him as a child by Aristotle. He was taught that at the edge of the Persian Empire lies a great river that leads to a great sea. And Alexander suspected that if he followed the river to the sea, he might be able to sail back to Greece. Alexander and his army stood on one side of the river in the warm rain of spring in India. And he watched his enemies guard the other side of the river knowing very well that soon the monsoon rains would come and the river would become impossible to pass. He had to act fast. Alexander took his army 30 kilometers upriver during a particularly stormy night, and there he was able to get a small detachment across the river, but not before a scouting party witnessed them crossing and engaged them. Now this party was killed, but not before a messenger was sent back to warn the Indian king that the army had made it across the river. Alexander sent a chariot with archers across the battle formations to fire as many arrows at the elephants as possible in hopes of stirring them up before the Macedonian phalanx marched into the line of war elephants. The elephants were devastating to his phalanx, but fortunately Alexander had the pikes lengthened before they engaged the elephants. It was very difficult to handle these pikes against the elephants, and the elephants killed a lot of Greeks in the center. But these extra-long spears really did manage to keep the elephants from completely plowing through their lines, even though 
a few elephants did make it through. The Indian king saw that his left flank was failing against the Greek companions and sent his chariots behind the lines to reinforce his left flank. However, Alexander managed to swing his left flank around the entire Indian battle formation and completely encircled the enemy and attacked the Indian chariots from the front and the back, destroying them in battle. Now this maneuver also managed to spook many of the elephants in the center and they started to retreat right over their own soldiers, wrecking havoc over the Indian battle lines. These these war elephants were completely spooked and as they ran away they were just trampling people. Now the Indians that managed to break free and retreat behind their camp thought they were leaving the battlefield, but they were actually intercepted by the rest of the Greek army that used the battle as a distraction to cross the main river. After cutting down the fleeing Indian soldiers, the Greek cavalry charged right into the rear formation of the main Indian army. Now this was the single most costly battle for Alexander the Great. The Indian war elephants shredded most of the Greeks, preventing their phalanx from defending against the beasts. However, Alexander managed to barely pull out a victory, defeating the enemy and securing the Punjab region into his new empire. Alexander was so impressed at how the king of the Indian army fought bravely on the back of his elephant and refused to surrender until he was forcibly captured that he appointed him to be the general of the Punjab province of Alexander's new empire. So he treated him a lot better than he treated his own people in the first battle that he captured. Now Alexander wanted to keep conquering, but as he approached the next river to cross into India, his army mutinied. They refused to go any further. Rumors spread throughout the army that giant armies waited for them inside of India. His men refused to continue marching any further. Angry at his soldiers' refusal to continue moving forward, he decided to follow the Indus River south towards the Great Indian Ocean. And while he traveled south along the river, he ran into another kingdom. And it is here that he was stabbed in the chest with a pike, nearly killing him on the battlefield. When they reached the mouth of the Indus River on the coast of the Indian Ocean, most of Alexander's troops boarded the ships and sailed along the coast back to Persia. While Alexander himself decided to lead the rest of his party straight across the southern deserts of Persia. And this trek was so harsh because of the lack of supplies and the dry deserts, that a good portion of his army died of thirst while they were crossing the desert. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.